0: Do please take a seat again. So, there we are at the, uh, the church council meeting on Thursday evening this week. Um, doing um, what has the potential to be a pretty dull little exercise in approving all of the policies uh, that, um, uh, that a church needs these days. Um, data protection policy, um, health and safety policy, a uh, safeguarding policy, um, a, a food hygiene policy. Um, and, you know, they're all important, but sometimes they can be a little bit dull. But then, excitingly, we get to the terrorism evacuation policy. Now, there's a cracker, isn't it? Um, how about that? So, um, it goes like this. In the event of a terrorist incident, the advice from NACTSO... Rises for no one. NACTSO stands for? Mata, 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 mata. No one's very confident. It's national. National something. Counterterrorism, Very good. Something. What's the next experience? Security office. That's it. Security office comes in. NACTSO. Okay, so. The advice is run, hide, and tell. Run to a place of safety. This is a far better option than to surrender or negotiate. If there's nowhere to go, then hide. It's better to hide than to confront. Remember, turn your phone to silent and turn off vibrate. Barricade yourself in if you can. Then finally, and only when it is safe to do so, tell the police by calling 999. bit unnerving, isn't it? Uh, The advice that that, that adds that if you can't hide and you can't calm the terrorist down by asking him to pray for him or get him a glass of water, then your last resort is to fight. So there we are. Now you know. All of which left me wondering what I would do if said terrorist incident occurred. Because, of course, in my fantasy level... Um, I I would love to think that I would be the hero of the moment, that I would calmly oversee an evacuation, cunningly distracting the terrorist at a crucial moment, or better still, that I I would seize his semi-automatic weapon as he came up the top of the stairs um, and disable him instantaneously, becoming a hero and saving hundreds. I suspect that I would probably just freeze like a rabbit in the headlights um, and do absolutely nothing of any use whatsoever, um, truth be told. How do you think you react in the face of threat? What do you do when trouble comes? When suddenly you feel yourself enormously vulnerable uh, and in the face of great difficulty? Well, that is the issue that was facing the people of God uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 30, uh, which is where we are landing today. That um, the people of God, under the, in the face of great threat from the mighty empire of Assyria, uh, which had grown in strength and power and influence from the north, centered in Nineveh, Uh, and uh, sweeping down, already overthrown uh, the northern kingdom of of Samaria, um, uh, the ten lost tribes of of Israel, taken into exile, uh, never to be restored. And and now Judah, uh, the capital city of Jerusalem, under threat, uh, facing the the sweeping in of the Assyrian forces uh, under the rule of Sennacherib. And in the face of that threat, what was the people's main strategy? Well, as we are going to see, as I read from uh, chapters 31 and, uh, 30 and 31 now, their main strategy was to, to turn to Egypt, uh, to, to the nation to the south, to forge a, a military and political alliance uh, with, uh, with Egypt in the hope that their joint forces would somehow be able to stand in the face of the invasion from the north. But as we're going to see, it is a folly. Not just a military or political folly, but it's a spiritual folly. And these chapters, therefore, invite us to ask a similar sort of question of ourselves... The people of God in Isaiah's day believed that security was to be found in Egypt in the face of threat. Where do you and I believe security is to be found in whatever threat we are facing now or we might be facing in the future? Where do we go to make ourselves safe? Uh, So as I read um, a long extract, I'm going to read two whole chapters Um, As I read, I'd like you to be sort of noticing the character of this rebellion, because that's what it is. To turn to Egypt is a rebellion against God. God should be their God, and they are looking elsewhere for security. So look for the character of the rebellion, then then look out for the consequences of the rebellion, and then finally look for the alternatives that Isaiah presents uh, to rebellion. Okay, Um, so we're going to pick it up in uh, chapter 30. Um, Why don't I pray for us for this long reading, that we make sense of it together. Uh, Father God, um, we we dive back two and a half thousand years um, to a situation so utterly different uh, to ours today. Uh, But our prayer is that the spiritual significance uh, of this will be clear to us um, and will seem important to us and will drive us uh, to uh, a new understanding, uh, but still more importantly, um, a new way of living uh, because of what we read here. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 30 uh, of Isaiah, page 714. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. To those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Hanez, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage but only shame and disgrace. A prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasure on the humps of camels, to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore I call her Rahab the do-nothing, Go now, write it on a tablet for them. Inscribe it on a scroll that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instructions. They, they say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found, for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In in quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore you will flee. You said, we'll ride off on swift horses. Therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash, spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in the sieve of destruction. He places in the jaws of the people a bit that leads them astray. And you will sing... As on the night you celebrate a holy festival, your hearts will rejoice as when people playing pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause people to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, with cloudbursts, thunderstorm, and hail. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. With his rod he will strike them down. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with his punishing club will be to the music of tambourines and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. Topheth has long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made wide and deep with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen but do not look to the holy one of Israel or seek help from the Lord yet he too is wise and can bring disaster he does not take back his words he will rise up against that wicked nation against those who help evildoers But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against for in that day every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Assyria will fall by no human sword. A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword, and their young men will be put to forced labor. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At the sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion whose furnace is in Jerusalem. We're going to look at um, at little sections and I'm again a bit like last week going to annoy you by making you flick to and fro between the two chapters. Um, I want to give you a flavor of Isaiah's words um, uh, as we look at them. Uh, Look at under those three headings. First the character of this rebellion. Second the consequences of the rebellion. And then third The alternative uh, to this rebellion. It it, it is easy, isn't it? I think um, to to, to kind of gaze back uh, these two and a half thousand years into history and find ourselves looking at this people of God and thinking, "Oh, silly people! Why didn't they trust the Lord um, in the face of the Assyrian threat? Fancy going to Egypt! How daft!" You know, you know, and, and sort of get into our heads that you know we would have done so much better. But, of course, the reality is we we don't do much better. All sorts of ways that we scuttle after other things uh, other than the Lord uh, to find security, to find safety, to feel reassured. Um, I I don't know, what might it be? It, It could be wealth that we trust. And you know, we'll be OK. We've got a bit put by, uh, and the pension provision uh, with our job is excellent. Or, or maybe it's medicine. Don't worry, you'll be fine. It's amazing what they can do with these new treatments these days. or our career. No, 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 with a, with a C.V. like yours, you'll be fine. You'll get another job soon. Or relationships. Listen, you know that your friends and your family, they'll always be there for you. The phrases roll off the tongue, don't they? Very easily, very comfortably. But what do they say about who we finally trust? If they represent not just a reassuring word, but actually the foundation for our confidence in the face of trouble. Uh, come at it another way. What does it take to make you panic, to, to really unnerve you within? Would it, would it be redundancy? Would that be the thing that would really unsettle you? Would it be a sinister mole? Would it be a financial crash? Would it be the loss of your reputation? The disapproval of people close to you. Whatever it is that would really unnerve us, that we most dread happening, is another way of getting to see what it is that we are really trusting in. Where is our hope? The people's hope in Isaiah's day was in Egypt start of our reading woe to that obstinate woe to the obstinate children declares the lord to those who carry out plans that are not mine forming an alliance but not by my spirit heaping sin upon sin who go down to egypt without consulting me and look for help to pharaoh's protection to egypt's shade for refuge, and you get the sense that towards Egypt, all of their resources, all of their energies, are poured in that direction. Uh, it said in verse six of chapter thirty, envoys are carrying the national treasures. They're entering the, the, the temple treasury to try and buy their way out of pl- uh, out of trouble. And there is an either orness about this decision. Uh, Flip over to, to the beginning of chapter 31. Um, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. It's one or the other. Which way are you going to go? Isn't that why Jesus sets us such stark alternatives? You can't love both God and money, he says, bluntly, plainly. It's an either orness. Either your trust is in him, or you find some other source of trust and confidence to live your life by. So, so how is it with us? Where do we invest? their envoys carrying their treasures on camel's humps where do we carry our treasures to where where does our time and energy and resources go towards we desperately strive to progress in our chosen career gain promotion are we enormously invested in staying healthy eating well Or day after day, are we working terribly hard at at winning friends and influencing people, getting people to like us? Is that our heartbeat day after day? Where does our energy get poured? What are we chasing after that we think will make us content, give us joy, make life right? Our chosen gods... Become the focus for our energies. They provide the altars for our sacrifices. And the reason that they do that is because we have stopped listening to God. Chapter 30 and verse 9. These are rebellious people, deceitful children children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instructions. They say to the seers, see no more visions. To the prophets, give us no more visions of what's right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. That's what it looks like when we stop accepting correction. When, as it were, God is no longer able to to confront us and tell us we're going the wrong way and to to turn us. You may be reading the Bible every day. You could be here every Sunday um, listening to to, to one of us uh, preach sermons. But if, as you engage with God's Word, God's Word is unable to, to turn you around, to confront you and tell you that something that you currently think is wrong and you need to think something different... If it can't do that, then you are effectively saying, stop confronting me with the Holy One of Israel. Tell me instead pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Just let me hear things that confirm me in the path that I've already chosen so I can trog on unchanged by God's Word disturbing me. So the character of the rebellion is is a deafness to God, to who he is, to what he wants, and in its place, a trust in some other God of our own creation and for our own salvation. Okay, so the character of the rebellion. uh, Second, the consequences uh, of the rebellion. Uh, Chapter 30 um, and verse 3. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Hanes, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage but only shame and disgrace. See, here's the, here's the irony... Isaiah is helping us to see that the gods that, that, that we look to and that we're so sure will protect us actually won't. Yeah, money promises us joy and contentment and security, but it's a lie. Like the great nation of Israel, it cannot deliver. We invest all our energies, verse 6. But it is to no profit, for the help of Egypt is utterly useless. Therefore, says Isaiah, I will call her Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab was the name of um, a kind of a mythical sea monster. Um, A picture of enormous power um, and strength and might. But in, in this sort of twist on the image... Isaiah says this is Rahab the do-nothing. Not so much a a, a mighty monster as a sort of feeble old woman, unable to accomplish anything. No power, no resources, no force, of no value. Isaiah's pointed to the things we think are mighty, the things that we think will make us feel secure, be secure, they never really do. Egypt didn't and nor do our gods today we think that if we can just have enough money then then we'll stop needing to worry but the thing is how much money do you need? well you always need just a little bit more and the thing is that soon money is the thing that's worrying us you know are my investments okay? okay what about a financial crash and how about the mortgage rates and the inflation and how will I make sure that my investments should I buy another house would that be a good idea is now the time to upsize soon our money is just consuming us preoccupying our energies It's the same whatever we rely on for security and strength. The the person who desperately wants to be liked is so often the person who struggles most in relationships. Have you noticed that? They're desperate to have close friends. And paradoxically, that great desperation for close friends is the very thing that is getting in the way of them forming friendships. The person who who worries about their health makes themselves sick with worry I mean it's it's an awful irony, it would be funny if it weren't so terrible the person who wants to control things is super sensitive to anything that isn't quite the way it should be God wants us to see that the things that we rely on the the things that we, we look for to give us a sense of security can't not ultimately look at chapter 30 and verse 12 where we see what it's like when we reject God and look to other things for salvation this is what the holy one of Israel says because you have rejected this message relied on oppression and depended on deceit this sin will become for you like a high wall cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly, in an instant. Break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. You catch the image? It's a sudden disaster. It's just a sort of poised, this, this wall, bulging, ready to go. And once it's gone, you can't even find anything useful within it, even to sort of scoop a few ashes. Out of your finished fire. Such ruin. They imagine, verse 16, that the horses that they'd get from Egypt would help them flee to safety. But actually, they're the ones that are going to have to flee. It won't be them riding swift horses, but their pursuers who will be swift to destroy. And why is this? Well, it's because. Chapter 31, verse 3, it's because the Egyptians are mortal and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. Whenever we replace the God who is a real God with these other things that we turn into gods and pretend that they're worth worshipping, we're undone. Left finally... Chapter 30, verse 17, like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill, lonely, alone, with ruin and devastation all around us. It's, it's pretty powerful, grim stuff. And you, 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 A bit of you wants to say, oh, well, you know, this is what you expect from the Old Testament. You get all this fire and brimstone stuff. You know, it's all a bit grim, isn't it? You know, let's, you know, soon we'll be back in the New Testament, won't we? Uh, we'll soon have a bit more of that cheerful Jesus loves you stuff. And you can only say that if you've not read what Jesus teaches. Again and again, Jesus presses upon us that he will come back like a thief in the night. He says, watch out, because I'll come in a moment when you're not expecting me. And if you're unprepared, if you're sleeping when I come, well, then there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. How many times in the gospel accounts do we get that language from Jesus? Now the message of the certainty of judgment is strong and powerful right the way through the scriptures. So here's Isaiah's warning. If we go after the wrong gods, if we invest in the wrong salvation, then we need to know that it will not finally stand. A day will come when judgment will fall And we will be without hope because we did not trust in the one who could save us. Uh, And that's why wonderfully we need to land uh, finally uh, with the alternative. Um, Old Testament prophets are confusing, aren't they? Um, Maybe you are aware of the way in which um, as, you, as you try and read an Old Testament prophet, you are doing something like gazing at a mountain range. Have you uh, had this analogy before? It um, helps a bit. Uh, if you've been up to the Lake District, um, you, you know, you're going to climb, um, I don't know, Scarfell Pike or whatever, and you, you begin your walk, and in the distance you can see the peaks you're heading to. Um, and you begin to climb, and you've got your eye on the peak. But as you approach it, you discover that that's not the peak at all. Um, and uh, into view comes another peak, which is much further on and much higher. And you think, oh, blow me. So you press on, uh, and you head towards this second peak. Uh, and then, as you approach that one, lo and behold, another peak appears beyond that, uh, which is sort of further away and higher. And so you press on all the way to the top of that third peak. And then finally you're at the top, and it's cloudy. Because uh, it always is in the Lake District. Um but you have at least finally got to the top. Well, the Old Testament prophets are a bit like that. Um, you get sort of levels of fulfillment because there's a sense in which this, the, the prophecy of Isaiah here was fulfilled in 701 BC. Assyria did invade. King Zennacherib sieged Jerusalem, but there was a mighty deliverance. A great judgment fell on the, the army of Assyria. Um, and vast numbers of the Assyrian army died uh, in a single day, uh, and kings and Acherib uh, retreated. Uh, Jerusalem was delivered, at least at that point. Um, the Babylonians came and got them uh, before too much longer. So, so, so there's that fulfillment, but wind forward, and you can see a second fulfillment. When Jesus comes, and, and the kingdom breaks in as Jesus comes in the first century in Palestine. Uh, And we get another fulfillment, the the king uh, that is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 32. See, a a king will reign in righteousness. But then there is a third fulfillment on the day when Jesus returns, uh, on the day finally uh, when eternity breaks in. Uh, Then these images powerful as they are will be eclipsed by the reality the spiritual realities of which they speak uh, in that final day, that mighty day when God's judgment and his salvation fall side by side so as we close um, we need to to see the way um, in which our response to God needs to be shaped. Um, so let's do that by looking uh, at the language of, um, uh, of chapter 30 and verse 18. For, for there we discover that, that God is a God who waits. The original is that the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Um, and blessed therefore, end of the verse uh, 18 of chapter 30, blessed are all who wait for him. It, it's as if God is waiting for you. Will, you. will you respond? Will you turn to him? Will you realize the folly of going after other gods? And will you finally decide, this is my God. I will go for him and him alone. He will rule me. And I become somebody who now waits for him and his deliverance. Will you do that? Well, verse 19, the next verse, tells us what that will look like. It will look like someone who cries to God for help. And when you cry, when you call to him, he will answer you. And how will he answer you? Verse 20, although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. It's a gross image, but a gross image because Isaiah needs some language to say just how awful it is to go for a, a, a wrong God, a false God. and how much you should want to just throw that away. So so this image, as you return to God, so you discover that this God will speak to you. This God will tell you how to go, how to live, what to do. Nactso says, run, hide, tell. In a sense, I suppose, as, as we think about that notion How would we apply it spiritually? Run to him, nowhere else. Find a hiding place in him and nowhere else. And call upon him and no one else. Stop relying on your own resources and say, my only hope for salvation is to be found in him. I want to close uh, with an image from chapter 31. It seems to me that you and I will only be persuaded to run to him, to hide in him, to call upon him for salvation, That to give up our alternative gods. We'll only do that if we see who he is. Um, And so I want to finish and then we'll pray. Uh, Just by looking at, at the imagery in chapter 31 and verse 4 and 5. It's a twofold image. First we see God as a lion and then we see God as a bird. And the first image is of God fierce in his strength for what he can do for you. And the second we see is the image of God compassionate, gentle in covering you and keeping you safe. We need to know both of those things about God to know that he alone is worth going to. Let me read these verses and then we'll clinish. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor so the Lord Almighty will come down and do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Return, Christchurch. Return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Father God, please persuade us of your character, your greatness, your glory, your strength, your goodness, your kindness. So enable us to see Jesus Christ his purity, his love for us, his inexpressible grace in going to the cross in our place. Enable us to to so see you with spiritual eyes that any other source of devotion uh, we will set aside in order that we might be devoted to you. Uh, Please uh, grant this, uh, so that we might live as those who are wholeheartedly devoted uh, to you, our great King and our great God. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.